This is November session on generosity, second talk. Buddhism and Zen is profoundly practical. First, we work to know ourselves, who we are in the many different ways, many different sides of ourselves. And in doing so, we have insights, kinsho, openings. And then we try to apply what we have learned to help others in our own particular way, the way our particular life has shaped. And in trying to help others, we realize our inadequacy. We realize how little we really understand. And so we start all over again, trying to understand ourselves, looking more deeply, having different kind of openings, offering it back, practicing, realization, offering, practice, realization, offering, over and over. But each time we go through this cycle, it's both the same and different. Each of us has his or her own karma, and so we keep meeting ourselves, our particular karma. And yet, as we meet it over the years, the decades, it's different each time. Zen is a particularly active and dynamic form of Buddhism, very direct. So we have to understand ourselves and see things deeply and not conceptually. Conception means that we have an idea about something, but we don't have the direct experience. We may have the direct experience, but we're not talking from the direct experience. We're talking about our ideas about the direct experience. For example, if someone were talking about Kyoto, the city in Japan, may have read, heard, seen photos or videos of Kyoto. And they could even give lectures on it. They have enough data. But it's very different than actually walking on the nightingale floors in Nijo Castle. The very direct experience can't be described in words, of course, and yet when we speak from having been to Kyoto and knowing what the traffic is like on Saturday night, knowing what the Gion district is like, knowing how the rivers run, then it's very different. And so we can then use words to speak about something from our direct experience. They become live. And Dogen and the great Zen masters, who wrote so much, the ones who really are writing from direct experience, they communicate that. They give a flavor of it. And that flavor, of course, can't ever replace our own direct experience. But the deeper our experience is, the deeper we realize that some of the great masters are writing from. And then it's very clear, or it becomes more and more clear, who is just talking from ideas. We do the same thing. When we're intimately observing, feeling, and being with the breath, we can talk about it, we can express it differently. Sometimes we express it with words, 
Sometimes we express it without words. There are many different levels, different kinds of expression. But when we're paying really attention, we're feeling it, we're merging with it, we're becoming one with it. And then when someone asks us, how does the breath feel in the legs? When we breathe, we can answer. Because we just look in, we feel, and we answer from that experience. If we are still answering from our head, we might say things like, well, just like the rest of the body, or nothing unusual, or the legs don't move, or the breath doesn't go down to the legs. After all, the air doesn't go down to the legs, it only stops at the diaphragm. Or there really is no change, or I don't know, or it's an irrelevant question. Why are you asking such a stupid thing? Or something else very vague. And clearly, when we answer in this kind of way, we haven't actually looked at the direct experience. So look right now. What happens as you breathe to the thighs? We might say something like, on the inhalation, there's a sense of slight enlargement. There's a sense of tingling. Seems like there's more movement along the top of the thigh. As the weight shifts in the upper part of the body, Because of the breath, I notice the muscles in the upper part of the thigh, in the top of the thigh, tense slightly differently. There seems to be greater tension near the knees, less tension up near the hips. I can't really tell how thick they are. All I can feel is this kind of rumbling movement of kind of half movement, half visual, flickering. The skin feels warm, especially on the bottom. And then we can go on. We can keep talking and describing the direct experience from that. And it's very different when we ask It's very different when we do that. The more closely we pay attention, and the longer we pay attention, and the more closely we look, the more we see. So during the last session, Chosen had many people working on tongue practice, simply looking at the tongue. And when we look at the tongue, minutely, continuously, over and over, it keeps opening up and revealing itself. But if we're not really looking at the tongue and we're thinking about the tongue, we don't see anything. It's just tongue. Same is true with the breath. We ask all these questions, all this advice, all this encouragement, to encourage us to look and to feel the breath breathing us. To feel what happens in the chest, in the belly, in the thighs. To let go, to see how deep the breath goes, how wide the breath is, what the source of the breath is, where it comes from. And when, depending upon how somebody answers, whether they answer from their direct experience, whether they answer from their ideas, whether they answer from some mixture of that, reveals how concentrated they are, reveals how closely and intimately they're looking at something. And then try to encourage them based upon what they're showing us. Encourage them. Nudge them. Whatever way possible, keep looking more and more intimately. 
Sometimes the breath is so interesting, it becomes completely absorbing. This is all a function of concentration and attention. We can completely lose ourselves in the breath. We can completely lose ourselves in anything that we pay close, minute attention to and are not thinking about. Thinking about is standing back away from and assessing, looking at the thing, the label. So we think about the conceptual notion of la- the conceptual label of breath is the air goes into the nostrils and down into the lungs and the lungs expand with the diaphragm and, uh, and then the air goes out again. That's just a conceptual thing. But it doesn't even touch the richness of feeling the air go down, of feeling the chest expand, of feeling the belly move, of feeling the life and the vitality of the air come in. It doesn't touch it at all. So as we're constantly encouraging people to come to the direct experience, the direct experience, the direct experience, forget any idea, anything you've heard, and look directly. And we can do that, of course, many levels. If we're looking at the breath directly, it reveals all of the basic Buddhist truths. It reveals the truth of impermanence, the truth of no self, the truth of the five hindrances, the truth of interdependence. We can see these things with the breath non-conceptually. We may not even have the words to actually apply to them. It's one of the virtues of hearing how other people may have described something that we have directly experienced. But when we are experiencing something directly, even though we don't have the, the best words for it, in the effort, the fumbling effort to articulate what our experience is, we reveal our experience. And that fumbling effort to find the words for that which cannot be named, but coming out of direct experience, is much more informative, reveals our state of mind, reveals our understanding, than if we are smooth and articulate, because we have conceptual understanding. We find the state of mind of the sutras through the breath. We can find the truth of emptiness through the breath, of karma, the four bodhisattva vows, It teaches us about koans, the paramitas. The breath is the gateless gate. But if we think it's just a mechanical movement of air into the lungs, we don't see any of that. The breath is the rising and falling of universes. It's the coming into being of our own life and the dying away of our own life. It's alive, and it's dead. It exists, and it doesn't exist. But we have to taste that directly. And it's both the hardest thing in the world to do and the easiest. It's the easiest because it's our birthright. All we have to do is pay attention. 
it's hard because our mind has put up so many barriers and ideas and notions and filters that we're not looking directly, that we get sidetracked, that we wander off into ideas about things instead of being willing to let ourselves just go into them. To let ourselves go, to let the breath go, to go into something not knowing what we're going to encounter takes a kind of courage, takes a leap of faith. If we're intimately engaged in the breath, we get to the point we don't know whether we're going to breathe again. We don't know where the breath came from. We don't know whether we even exist or not. And at that point, when we don't know, there has to be a certain letting go, a leap of faith. Basui always describes it very dramatically. He says, you get to the, the edge of the precipice, and then with your hands high in the air, you throw yourself into the primordial void of your own being. But it's also, in Buddhism, Buddhism is very practical in that anything that we see has to also function. It's in the functioning that things become alive. So if we see something about the truth of emptiness, we also have to see how does that function. If we see something about the truth of non-arising or of impermanence, how does that function? How is it revealed? If we see something about the truth of interdependence, if it's just an idea, we, have, we have, don't understand how it deals with this particular direct experience. But as soon as we have the direct experience, then we may have to fumble for the words, but we can see, oh, my life and the life of everything else is not different. If I raise my hand, I can touch the highest heaven. If I die, all the way to the end of the breath, letting go, 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 until there's no one left, everyone dies with me. And they're all reborn. You might touch the boundless mind, but how does it function? How does it function? So we have different levels of practice, different ways of practicing. And it's not as though one of them is better than another, or one of them is superior than another, but each of them tries to address different aspects. So we have the basic foundational teaching which we all need to embrace more and more and more deeply of the breath. But then there are koans that somehow, that sometimes deal with different places that we get stuck, different ideas that we have about self or other, past, present, and future, existence, generosity, the use of words. And so we're offered a koan at times that might catch us with some idea we have. And then the challenge is, can I breathe deeply? Can I let go? Can I go into this koan? Can I become one with this koan? Can I 
feel this koan from the inside and have it reveal its truth to me. Some people work on breath, work on shikantaza, but even breath and shikantaza, which seem like passive things to do on the cushion, have a very active component to them. Shikantaza, the mind that simply allows things to arise, exist, and disappear, allows the five senses, even the six senses, the mind too, allows things to come in and to go out. It must function. It's not just sitting like a lump. It must function. Otherwise, it's just in a, an inert state. When we're doing shikantaza, how do we work? We're doing shikantaza, how do we eat? We're doing shikantaza. How do we drive? Do kinhin. It has to always function. This session is on generosity. And on the surface, we always think about generosity, well, just giving stuff to people. What does generosity have to do with zazen and the breath? We could say another name for pure generosity is offering. And if we look at generosity in this way, as generosity is offering, what do we have to offer? Sitting still, breathing, what can we offer? We can offer our attention. We can offer our breath. We can offer our thoughts. We can offer the taste in our mouth. We can offer our eyes, our ears. What do we offer them to? Many ways of looking at that also. I'm going to be reading a little bit from uh, Dogen Shobogenzo, the Kuyo Shobutsu, Serving Offerings to Buddhas. Serving Offerings to Buddhas. Here's how it begins. The Buddha said, If there were no past ages, there could be no past Buddhas. If there were no past Buddhas, how could there be leaving the family life and receiving ordination? That is, how would there be any monks or practitioners now? Clearly remember in the three ages, past, present, and future, without fail, Buddhas exist. Now with regard to past Buddhas, Do not say they have a beginning, and do not say they have no beginning. If we falsely suppose the existence or non-existence of a beginning and an end, we are not learning the Buddha Dharma at all. If we falsely suppose the existence or non-existence of a beginning and an end, we are not learning the Buddha Dharma at all. What does that have to do with the breath? Does the breath have a beginning? Does it have an end? Does this cycle of breathing have a beginning and an end? We're born, we die. What are we talking about here? Those who serve offerings to past Buddhas and leaving family life follow and obey them inevitably become Buddhas. They become Buddhas by virtue of serving Buddhas. How could living beings who have never served offerings to even a single Buddha themselves become a Buddha? 
There can be no becoming a Buddha without cause. Now, superficially, people hear stuff like this and they think, oh, the Buddha is just kind of an Asian name for essentially the same energy as God, essentially the same thing as God. It's very, very different. First off, when we speak of Buddha, it has to include all these basic truths of Buddhism. It has to include impermanence. It has to include non-self. It has to include interdependence. It has to include karma. It has to include awakening and delusion. It can't be outside of anything. It has to include existence and non-existence. Six perfections. Saving all beings. we're talking about Buddha, we're not talking about some abstract notion of some place, thing, being that is cool and serene and unconnected, or that creates something and disappears. This Buddha has to have all of the same truths that we do. The truth of impermanence. The truth of no self. The truth of no beginning and no end. The truth of boundlessness. The truth of karma. The truth of saving beings. The truth of endless practice. When we talk about a Buddha, we're not talking about something else someplace else. Yet, there is that side of it. But if we don't understand the boundlessness of our own mind, if we don't understand the beginningless of our own being, then we think about self and other. We think there's something to do with this rock that's on the altar that's different than I am. And we begin to have a feeling for, or a little glimpse into the inner penetration of all things. That everything we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch is our own body. Our relationship becomes very different. And so that's what Dogen Zinji is talking about here. Maizumi Roshi used to say, My Shakyamuni Buddha. He was quoting one of Dogen's poems. The mountains and rivers, all are my Shakyamuni Buddha. The whole room is my Shakyamuni Buddha. The rain outside is my Shakyamuni Buddha. Very intimate. as intimate as our own eye, as intimate as the sound of the rain in our ears, as intimate as our own breath. If that's the case, we talk about offering to Buddhas. What are we offering? To what? What comes from what? and goes to what? 
in the same segment. Dogen Zenji quotes from uh, a sutra, a uh, Mahayana sutra called the Buddha's Treasury Sutra. I don't know, don't know it particularly. And it says in here, I'll read different sections, little sections of it. Buddha told Shariputra, I remember in the past seeking after Anyutara Samyak Sambodhi, that means supreme perfect enlightenment. I met 30 Kodis of Buddhas, all named Shakyamuni. That right there is a whole interesting question. Kodi basically is an endless amount of time. Kodis of Kalpas, of eons, of unimaginable amounts of time. I met an unimaginable number of Buddhas, all named with my name, all named Shakyamuni. I then, for every one of them, became a sacred wheel-rolling king. Wheel-rolling king is, is just a uh, kind of a Buddhist term of a, a king that is able to turn the wheel of the Dharma, a very wise king that is able to rule continents and worlds and galaxies. It sort of means kind of a, a supreme, supreme uh, being in a way. I became an earth-rolling king real rolling king, and throughout a lifetime, for the purpose of seeking after Anyutara Samyak Sambodhi Buddha, I served the Buddha and disciples, offerings of clothes, food and drink, bedding and medicine. And yet these Buddhas did not affirm me by saying, in a coming age, you will be able to become the Buddha. Wherefore? Because I had an expectation of gain. Now, in the Lotus Sutra and some of the other sutras, the great disciples come forward, and the Buddha says, in such and such a time, you too will become a Buddha. You too will become fully enlightened. You too will uh, inhabit your own Buddha world. And he gives that prediction over and over and over again. And here is Shakyamuni Buddha saying, he served endless numbers of Buddhas with his own name. But no one would affirm that he too would become enlightened because he was still had an expectation of gain. Sariputra, I remember in the past, I was able to meet 8,000 Buddhas, all named Constant Light. These Buddhas did not affirm me by saying, in the coming age, you will be able to become a Buddha. Wherefore? Because I had an expectation of gain. Sariputra, I remember in the past, I met 60,000 Kotis of Buddhas, all named Brightness, and they did not affirm me because I had an expectation of gain. Shariputra, I remember a past age with three Kodis of Buddhas, all named Pusha, and they did not affirm me because I had an expectation of gain. Shariputra, I remember in a past age, I was able to meet 18,000 Buddhas, all named Mountain King, and they did not affirm me because I had an expectation of gain. Shariputra, I remember in a past age, I was able to meet 500 Buddhas, all named Flowers Above, and they would not affirm me because I had an expectation of gain. And Sariputra, in the past, I was able to meet 500 Buddhas, all named Majestic Virtue. And all of them did not affirm me because I had an expectation of gain. Sariputra, I remember in a past age, I was able to meet 200,000 Buddhas, all named Kunadima. And then for every one of them, I became a sacred wheel rolling king. And I offered Buddha offerings of every kind, and they did not affirm me because I had an expectation of gain. 
Sariputra, I remember in a past age, I met 9,000 Buddhas, all named Kashapa. And I served offerings of four things to the Buddhas and their hosts of disciples. And they did not affirm me because I had an expectation of gain. Shakyamuni Buddha says he served countless, countless, endless, boundless numbers of Buddhas. Many as the sands, thousands, millions of rivers, Ganges. And he served everything he could give. But because he still was saying, I want, I'm giving because I want to get something. I'm not offering this freely. I'm offering this with a hook. I'm offering this hoping that if I propitiate you, if I offer the right thing, if I say the right thing, if I give you the right thing, then I will get something. Awakening, peace, enlightenment, who knows. This particular little sutra has pages more of this. He just keeps saying over and over and over again, I offered and offered and offered, but because I had an expectation of gain, nothing came of it. In a way, that's not true, because everything has an effect. But what he was deeply seeking bore no fruit. So what do we offer right here, right now? We have the ability to offer our breath, to offer our attention, to offer the awareness of this body. And we can do that for an endless amount of time. Keep thinking, if I just do it right, I'll get something. If I just do it right, then I'll have some experience. If I just do it right, then I'll become wise. If I just do it right, I'll get good karma, or whatever our particular fantasy happens to be. And so instead of offering our breath and being with our breath and giving our breath fully to our breath. We constantly have that little voice back there that's saying, well, am I doing okay? Am I doing okay? Am I doing okay? Maybe I'll get it right this time. If I get it right this time, then maybe I'll get what I want. It doesn't work that way. We could spend eons of kodis of kalpas, as they say. We have to give the breath completely. We have to give our attention completely. We have to give completely. Nothing left. And how do we do that? We do that by becoming completely attentive. So that we are, our attention is in the breath. So there's just the breath because our attention is so intimately merged with the breath, there's no one standing outside the breath evaluating it. No one standing outside the body evaluating it. When we're intimately merged in that way, the mind is still. To give completely, there can't be any selfishness. To give to a Buddha completely, there can't be any selfishness. And there's no selfishness on the part of a Buddha either. Why would somebody who is perfect, whole and complete, lacking nothing, need anything else? We make the offerings in the Buddha sometimes of food. We do the offering, we offer it to the Buddha. The Buddha says, thank you very much. I've had my fill. Please, help yourself. And gives it back. We have to come into the practice. 
with the aspiration for awakening. And that aspiration for awakening, in a way, points us in a certain direction. So I've said many times, we're in Portland, we decide we're going to go to Seattle. Well, we point ourselves in the direction of Seattle. Once we're pointed in that direction, once we're moving in that path, then it's each step, each step, each step. And if we're busy taking a step saying, how long, how many more steps, how long, how many more steps, how long, how many more steps, I guarantee we'll give up because it seems infinitely long, infinite number of steps. But once we've pointed ourselves toward full awakening, anyatara samyak sambodhi, toward becoming a Buddha, and then moment to moment to moment, we give ourselves to ourselves. We give the breath to the breath. We let go into this body and breath. But again, it's practical. It's functional. I gave a whole list of criteria yesterday for what, what's what the criteria that are appropriate for giving. But because even though we may give this complete whole body, life, attention to the, our own Buddha here, to our own breath. It still has to function in the world. And when it functions in the world, it has to function in the world in a pragmatic way. Like I said yesterday, they have all the criteria for what makes an appropriate gift. Is it the right gift at the right time, in the right amount? Will it be a benefit? Will it not leave, leave harm behind? all those different criteria. So on an inner level, we have to give up everything. On an outer level, we have to express that giving up everything in a way that is appropriate to our circumstances. It's appropriate to the circumstances around us. Buddhism and Zen especially is always tries to figure out how it's appropriate to the circumstances. How, according to these circumstances, do I reveal the deepest truth? And that's what a lot of the koans are. A lot of the koans say, okay, well, in this circumstance, how does the truth get revealed? In that circumstance. And sometimes we do it by cutting everything off. And sometimes we do it by presenting things. And sometimes we do it by expressing the activity of things. And sometimes we do it by nothing at all. There's a lot of different ways, and we have to learn how to try to work with and to reveal and to function with this inner truth that we discover, truths that we discover. The breath is constantly changing according to circumstances. There is no constant breath. Our life is constantly changing. The breath that is below the constantly changing breath does not change. But it has to be seen directly. We have to also know who we are. If we're hearing teachings like this, you have to give completely. Who is it? Who is it that we can give to? If we realize the boundlessness of our own mind, if we realize that everything we see is our body, 
Who gives what to whom? How do we wholeheartedly give ourselves to ourselves? And at the same time, it can't just be some inner state of I give myself to myself by giving my full, complete attention, becoming one with my breath, having some experience. It has to be able to function in the world. This truth of oneness and interpenetration has to be able to function. So different people are working at different, different places, different stages. And we try to function, we realize our inadequacy. So we have to come back and we have to, to learn something more deep. And as we learn something more deep, then we have to try to share it. And it's a continual, a continual process. Feel the boundless breath, the breath that has no beginning, the breath that has no end, the breath that is one breath. Know the truth of oneness, and yet we offer candles, incense, flowers, tea, food, clothing, money, shelter, time, attention. We offer them to perfection itself, which has no need of them. And so it's the offering of them that really becomes important. There is a nice story in the Kuyosho Butsu of the Buddha saying, basically says that the Buddha has a deep appreciation for merit and generosity because merit and generosity were the foundation for his own awakening. And so to see merit and generosity in any place, at any time, is wonderful, even for himself. So the story goes like this. At the time of Buddha, Shakyamuni lived a blind monk. Once while this monk was sewing his robes, his needle became unthreaded, and he called out, is there, If there is anyone among you who seeks eternal joy and virtue, that is, by the merit of good deeds, good deeds will lead to heavenly reward, where good deeds can multiply and lead to beneficent states. Does any among you who seeks eternal joy and virtue through the merit of good deeds please rethread my needle? The Buddha Shakyamuni heard this call and answered, I am such a person. I shall rethread your needle. The blind monk immediately, recognizing the Buddha, stood and prostrated before him and said, Your merit is complete. Why would you want to seek more? Why would you who's already whole and complete, lacking nothing, why would you be interested in, in merit and doing good deeds? It was already perfect. The Buddha said, I awoke to supreme enlightenment as the result of merit, of generosity, and thus I am more than aware of its power. Out of its profound respect for generosity, I continue to do good. The Buddha later says, A small amount of mud, given sincerely, is superior to vast quantities of gold, given with the thought of reward. Flowers and incense offered with sincerity are far more valuable than vast quantities of gold offered with thoughts of reward. Proclaiming the Dharma for the sake of another's practice is far superior to vast quantities of gold given with thoughts of reward. So in Sashen, the minds have begun to calm down. Zindo is stable. 
to give ourselves diligently to the breath, to our koan, to shikantaza. When we have this many people practicing together, there is a power that is generated, a power which sustains our aspiration. And our aspiration and practice sustains everybody else. So when we are practicing diligently, everybody around us feels it, whether they know it or not. Often we'll have people who are very sensitive, who kind of open something up and experience something. And they'll come in and they'll, remember one person came in and said, we used to use the Kyosaku. He said, I used to, I get hit with the Kyosaku because I know when I get hit with the Kyosaku, it will help wake up the person next to me. What a profound understanding of the inner penetration. Or people who realize there's somebody sleeping next to them. And they say, I have to become very awake and alert because my being awake and alert will help them wake up. My enlightenment will help all beings. As soon as one person in a room begins to enter a samadhi-like state, concentration, nothing but the breath, the room begins changing its flavor. But we enter samadhi. We enter this state of whole one, oneness concentration by melting into the breath of the koan. We don't enter it by forcing, by saying, I'm going to get it, I'm going to make something happen. Because then there's an I who's going to make something, and there's this object, and there's this dualistic thing, which the harder we struggle, the more we create. We enter samadhi by melting with full, complete attention, moment after moment, by melting into the breath, by feeling the breath, by tasting the koan. Words and thoughts are inherently divisive. So, unless they're coming from the place of deep, complete, empty silence, we're trying to figure things out with words or thoughts, we're missing the point. Because the words and thinking is always, I am trying to understand that. And there's this, this division. We can't go into samadhi when there are words and thoughts there. So as the breath becomes more refined, as mu becomes more complete, as whatever koan, whatever shikantaza we're working in, there is just experience, 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 but no evaluator or evaluation of the experience. As soon as we say good or bad, that's just thoughts, that's just ideas. How can this moment be good or bad? How can this sound be good or bad? It's just a sound. It's gone. But the good or bad happens after the fact about what already happened in the past. In a moment, there is no evaluation. In one moment of breath, there is no evaluation. 
We just feel. Just breathe. Just listen. It's right here.